So I want to speak, I'm just, for the sake of the recording, I'm just going to speak a little bit about um, service and the relationship of roles and identity in service. So many, many years ago, as I started to say, I was practicing traveling in Burma. And as part of my travels, I met, a, as many travelers do, met a wonderful young man, Burmese guy, who invited me and the woman I was traveling with back to his house for dinner. Simple, easy task. Except, of course, it was a very poor family, particularly poor for, for uh, Burma as well. But we had met in the monastery, and so he wanted to have me be introduced to his family. And so when we got to his family's home, um, there they were lots of family members sort of behind a curtain, giggling away. And um, what had happened was they collected some pots and pans and food from other people in the village to make this meal. And when we arrived at the table, there were two places set. One for me and one for my traveling partner. And that was all. And being an American, of course, I kept inviting them to join us. I said, no, no, we have to eat together, you know. And, um, and they just kept shaking their head, no. And then I realized what a beautifully unselfish act this was. And that the joy that they had in, in offering us this meal was extraordinary. And that, as someone suggested earlier, my best, the best thing I could do was to sit down and eat it and enjoy it completely, yeah. So this is one way of um, uh, that service expresses itself, just as an outpouring of the heart, you know, unselfishly in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, at another point in my life, I was working in refugee camps in um, southern Mexico and then through in Central America during the time of the wars in Central America. And uh, we were setting up community kitchens in these camps and um, uh, trying to feed people who, thousands of people actually, who were living in the jungles in in Chiapas. And one of the things that kept happening in these camps is that the babies would get very sick. And so we would bring the babies out of the camps uh, because we couldn't bring things into the camps. And uh, we sort of established a sort of halfway house outside. and um, we would get the babies well, and they would go back to the camps, and so then they were there, they would get sick again. And so uh, we set up a system by which we brought them out of the camps and into these halfway houses, and then we hired Mexican mothers to nurse the babies, actually. And um, I would sit with these Mexican mothers who were nursing the children, and, uh, and I would be feeding these little babies. Uh, my son was, oh, not quite two years old at the time, and these babies were at least his age, but weighed, oh, maybe 20 pounds. Yeah. They were severely malnourished. And I remember feeding them. And um, at one point, I was even using eyedroppers to feed them, like a little bird, you know. And it would seem like the food would actually go in their mouths and come right out their bottoms, almost without being processed. It was like that. And it was the most helpless feeling in the world, you know to just feel this life slipping away in my arms, this little baby's life, you know. And I just remember um, reaching for my knowledge, you know, reaching for what might help in this situation, reaching for my expertise in some way. And, 
And I would go home and I would study and I would speak to doctors in the local town and try and learn things, all of which was helpful. But it wasn't until one day I'm watching these nursing Mexican mothers that I just began to stroke the throats of these babies. You know? And when I began to really stroke their throats and stroke their chest and stroke their bellies, I found that they were able to keep food. Yeah? And um, there was something so simple in that action, actually. Something so beautiful and simple in that action. Um, to discover in myself, beyond my identity, beyond my role, beyond my expertise, something that actually was of service. Yeah? It's beautiful. Um, as you know, I worked for many years in caring for people who were dying. And as part of that work, I live and work with um, people who are caregivers, uh, spend a lot of time around doctors and nurses and others who offer care. And I found that oftentimes, um, even in um, more enlightened environments, people aren't so interested in discovering what serves as much as they are in confirming some sense of identity about themselves. And I call this, oftentimes I call this helper's disease. And I think it's more rampant than cancer and AIDS put together. And I'm talking about the ways that people try to set themselves apart from other people's suffering through their roles, through their professional warmth, um, through other kinds of activities. Um, I think I might have said this last week that the attachment to the role of helper is pretty old in most of us and if we're not really careful it will imprison us and it will imprison those we serve. Um, for example, in my case when I'm working with somebody who's very sick or coming near the end of their life there's a period in which there can be a tremendous amount of fear around the pain or around the experience of dying. And um, this fear tends to create um, an experience of contraction, literally, in the person's mind and body. And oftentimes, people will start to identify very strongly with their anxiety, um, with their sh shrinking world in some way. And they experience themselves as getting smaller and smaller in some way, and more and more helpless. And they cling to whatever is familiar in the, for a certain period of time, even if it's their suffering. Now, too often, caregivers exacerbate that tendency. And they do that by focusing only on problem solving. Yeah? What happens? We come in the room and we say, how are you today? And that's a perfectly reasonable question. But imagine if you're the 27th person that's come in the room and asked them that question today. You begin to see yourself only as a problem. You, know, you don't have to call the person to liver in room 102. They just get the message after a while. So when we're only problem solving, we might intensify actually the contraction that's there for the individual. If we're only wedded, or we're very wedded to our identity as helper, we may inadvertently um, 
cause the person to feel small or broken in some way. Um, there was a fellow that I was working with. His name was Carl, and he was a grandpa to me. He was a really great grandpa. And I love him very much. And um, I learned from him the importance of people finding their own way and what happens, the strength of what happens when people find their own resourcefulness. Um, he had very serious stomach cancer and we had a morphine pump and all the appropriate interventions that were needed for him. And one day he said to me, I'd like you to teach me to meditate. And I said, well, Carl, you know, I could try, but you know, it takes people years to learn how to meditate. And he said, no, I'd really like to know. So I said, okay. So we began to draw his attention, as we might in mindfulness practice, to the area of sensation in his belly, the place which was hurting. And as I drew his attention into that area, he would just start to scream. It was just too much for him. It was way too much. And so I said, well, Carl, how about if I put my hands just out here? And I pulled my hands a little further away from his body. He said, let's just try this, you know. And he said, oh, no, that still hurts. And I said, well, how about if I pull my hands out here, we make a little more room for this pain. How's that? And he said, oh, that's a little better. I said, oh, okay. And so I pulled my hands still further out from his body, and I said, how's that? And he said, oh, that's lovely. Now, there was no mumbo-jumbo. I wasn't doing any energy healing or anything like this. There was just now more space for this pain. And I said to him, it's lovely, huh? He said, yeah. And I said, could you just rest there? And he began to repeat to himself, rest in love, rest in love. And so whenever Carl would get in trouble, he'd push his morphine pump, and he'd repeat to himself, rest in love, rest in love. And Carl discovered this. Carl figured this out. I didn't figure this out for him. If I'd given him that mantra to say, it would have been just another cliche. Huh? But because he discovered it and had meaning and value for him, he could use it. When someone is sick and dying, for example, but this applies to other areas of service as well, um, one calm person in the room can make all the difference. Yeah? Like in caring for someone who is sick, those of you who are nurses in the room, you know that you lend people your back and your legs. Don't you do that? When you move them from the bed to the commode, that's what we do. We lend them the strength of our bodies. You know about that. Anne knows about that. But we can lend people also the stability of our minds as well, the calmness of our minds. Um, and um, we can also offer them the fearlessness and the openness of our hearts. We can do that as well. We can be a reminder for stability and concentration. And we can expand our hearts in such a way that it might inspire the other to, to, to open their heart as well. And in doing this, I think, we become what I often think of as a compassionate refuge, actually. We become a person that's trustworthy actually. And in order for one soul to open up to another soul, they have to trust. Yeah? Otherwise, it has no reason to open. 
Now, in order to do this, in order to be such a refuge, um, we have to be willing to come out, to step out from behind our very well-defended roles. Yeah? We have to be willing um, uh, to go beyond our personalities and the ways in which we have defined ourselves. Um, we have to be willing to set aside our belief systems so that we don't impose them on others. And I think we have to be willing to relinquish our control. Yeah. And in so doing, I th- often what happens is a door kind of opens. Um, a door to a different kind of spaciousness or openness. Maybe it's what happened in the prayer that in the few lines that you wrote, really. First, that door could seem a little scary or we might want to go like that, you know, to that kind of spaciousness. But I think also what happens is we open up to a quality of presence which will inform us in a way that just our expertise or just our past history couldn't inform, wasn't able to inform us. So, um, that's the subject for one of our last evenings, really. How do we really bring into bear um, the truth of our interconnection and how does that support service? We're going to get there. But tonight, I just wanted to sort of look at this business of role and how it um, can both, how it can get in the way in our, in our work of service. So, um, I thought I would do something a little different or may seem strange for a meditation group. I brought a video and it's about 12 minutes long and it's a really interesting video. And some of you may even know it. It's a video of the Dipsy Race. Does anybody know what the Dipsy Race is? Mm-hmm. You know, the Dipsy Race, if those of you don't know it, is a race that happens in Marin County, basically uh, uh, in the area of Mount Tam. Um, and this is a film that was made uh, about a particular set of runners. And it's one sighted runner and one blind runner. A blind runner who runs the Dipsy Race. It's a seven-mile race up some of the most tortuous you know, territory you can imagine. Now, um, before we talk more about the role in service, I want us to watch this film. And I'd like you to watch it in a particular way. The first is that while you're watching it, I want you to continue to sense your bodies very carefully, actually. Keep about 60% of your attention in your body. And notice what's occurring in your body as you're watching the film, because often when we watch TV, we tend to become rather passive. But I want you to actually track what's happening in your body, and then to notice, if you can, also if there are emotional states or states of mind that are emerging, but particularly the body. Um, and then wh- what I broadly want you to, uh, ex- to examine or look at is what do you notice about the relationship of service that's happening between these two men uh, in this film. That's as, that's as much as we need to explain at this point. What do you notice about the relationship of service that's happening between these two men? Okay? So that's the whole exercise. You can't do it wrong. It's only about 12 minutes long, so it won't take us very long. But we do need to dim the lights, those who are in charge of such things. Move around a little bit so everybody can see this. Huh. 
Okay. This is what I'd like us to do. Is just find ourselves in the groups of maybe three people. Move, move the chairs around, however you want to do it. We'll take a few minutes just to talk in a small group about what did you notice in the film about the relationship of service. We talk about service a lot. But what does it actually look like? What are its elements? What did you notice about their relationship with each other? What they just, you know, what did you notice about that? Okay, so take a few minutes just to talk in a group of three and then we'll come back to the larger group and we'll uh, harvest it a little bit and see what we can learn from one another. Okay, I might come around to the groups, but you just, uh, that's enough instruction to start. But I'm really curious about what you discovered, what you thought, what kinds of reflections you have about what you saw about the relationship with service here. So, let's just go for it. I'm curious to know, what did you see about the relationship with service? What's partnership. Partnership, yeah. There was partnership between the two of them. That was a piece of it. What about the partnership? What was particular to this partnership? Yeah. Very present in the moment. They were very present. Connected, intertwined. Uh-huh. What did you notice about that? Uh, he was just totally, you know, step by step, they seemed to be one unit. And uh-huh. speaking the same language together, you know? Uh-huh. Right. In sync. In sync. That's another good word, isn't it? So there was this great sense of connection. It was brought about by presence. It was the quality of being in sync. They were moving almost, you said, almost like one, one being. You could tell that practice. You tell it practice. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, good. touching. There was contact. There was touching. That was a big piece of it. Yes. And the sight of him, they were truly offering his presence. He uh-huh. would offer his arm. He would offer his back. And so it was not, he was grabbing him. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see what you mean. It was just, it was an offering, not a grasping. But it also was very practical, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to serve now. <laughs> you know? It was like, here's my arm. Come on, let's get running. But he didn't even say that, though. No. At the starting line, it was obvious from the bell that uh-huh. he put his arm up right. and he just put it the other guy grabbed him. And so it was just offered. Beautiful. Yeah. So I think it's a great metaphor for help, helping someone because they're jumping hurdles together and, you know, yeah. the offering is that they seem to be, they were dancing together. They were really doing this as a dance and they enjoyed it. So I noticed yeah. a lot of people who are, you know, I know some of them about them, but they really had this joy in their face when they were doing this. And other people's expressions were much more... <laughs> 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 you know, the guys leading the race. They don't look so happy. <laughs> These guys are very happy when they come up and finish line. So you're bringing in a really important piece here. First of all, I like, I just want to highlight something you said about it. it's like a dance. It's a beautiful image. But they were doing it like a dance. And then you said, and they were enjoying it. So we have this notion about service like it's a burden, it's an obligation, it's a duty. These are all words that we associate with service, actually. Servitude, we talked about this a little bit last week. And now you're introducing us to a whole other idea, which is enjoyment. The enjoyment of service. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and found that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, what else? Yeah. You were commenting on how matter of fact it was, or how just it was no big deal. No big deal. It wasn't, and the, and the film was good in that way as well, but it didn't make the sighted guy into this 
hero who would help yeah. his fellow man. And yeah, he didn't have a white hat, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of like, you know, just just a relationship that Phyllis was saying that um, there was no effort, there was no effort needed. It was, they didn't have to ask nicely uh-huh. and, you know, kind of thing, just they, sure. they went. Uh-huh. So this is a beautiful piece that you're bringing out in service for me, which is really important quality, which is ordinariness, actually. Ordinariness. Nothing special. You know, I, I said last week about uh, uh, Gregory Bacon's daughter saying, this is just simple human kindness. Nothing special. Yeah, that's great. Right. And then, um, um, so there was something else that I wanted to hide. Just at the, what did you say just at the end there? About how the, the they didn't have to work at the, they had to work at, at, the, at the relationship. So there was effort involved. I mean, they had to run up these bloody hills. That's a lot of work, more than I could do. But there wasn't extra effort. There was no extra effort that was required. Just a balance of effort, just the right amount of effort. This is what we say when we talk about meditation practice, isn't it? That we bring just a balance of effort to our practice. And there's a restfulness in that. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Yes? Well, I disagree. One thing that came up uh, <coughs> was that they had this, uh, this common goal. They were in it together. It wasn't uh-huh. about the blind. It was about it was about running. It was about running together, but running that race. Uh-huh. And that sense of the others, but did something bigger than, than both of them. And so they were in service to something bigger than both of them. Yeah. In this case, the race. Yeah. Leading the race. I really picked up on that thing of togetherness. I had the image like a three-legged race, you know. You uh-huh. said, tie a together. Uh-huh. The only way you can get there without falling down is you've got to do it together. Right. Well, this is just the opposite of how we normally think of service. Mm-hmm. We really think of service arising out of separateness. Out of, I'm going to help you. Yeah? Or we're going to go do some good works in the world. Or charitable acts. Charitable acts have been around for thousands of years and they haven't changed the damn thing. <laughs> because they are still driven by a notion of I and other. And until this starts to melt, you really can't be of true service. Now, I'm going to be careful as I say that because it's boundaries are necessary. You know, they are necessary <coughs> functions in the action of service. We might need to sustain certain boundaries in our in our work life, for example. But we also have to be, we have to know how those boundaries can totally melt. We have to really know that this other person's suffering is my suffering. And when we know that, then the way in which service happens is appreciably different. So we use the boundaries as a function, but we don't define ourselves by those boundaries. Because we use the role as function, but we don't define ourselves by those roles. An example with this with this movie, um, you know, it was kind of like a three-legged race. Both men were really giving it 100%. And yeah. They were both working sort of equally hard and, and getting themselves across the finish line. Yeah. Um, where I uh, have trouble kind of wrapping my mind around it is somebody who's bedridden, maybe uh-huh. can't speak, maybe yeah. you know has lost control of their bowels, uh-huh. um, or you're thinking about you know people in a, in a country where there's not enough food. Um, it's hard for me to think about what service looks like in those contexts or how that playing field can be so equal um, unless if you know you, you sort of give all your food away or, or split everything 50-50 or lie in bed next to the person or you know I, I mean That's good. Um, it's, it's hard for me to know how to to help or to be a service when it doesn't look so similar. 
Uh-huh. Anybody want to tackle this one? Anybody want to speak to your experience of it? Anne? Can I say that it's the same thing? I think, I think um, yeah, this, this to me, you, you could look at this and say, oh yeah, this is like being on top of the mountain. And it's easy to meditate from the top of the mountain, isn't it? Try doing that in real life, you need to shake it. So when you have something you love, or you need someone you're praying for who's completely dysfunctional physically, you just have to find the moment. So faith is a big, huge race. But instead of doing a big, huge race, maybe you can just find just a moment where you can meet in the neutral place and enjoy that moment. It be very tiny, very small. And yeah. both of you can appreciate that. I mean, it doesn't have to be the same. I did that with my husband. Frank helped a lot to do that. But those are the things that we ended up that saved uh, our, our marriage, actually, because the illness became everything. The cancer became everything we had to. For us, it was entire commitment to each other, then it, it was even damaged that we were trying to take over. And, but again, if you know, my time kind of moment where you really make a connection with someone who's being very, very simple and heartfelt. So you keep seeing the humanity in one another, the goodness of our good. You keep seeing yourself in one another, despite the conditions. And also, the, like, the uh, Right. uh, Other places of connection. Right, so you find the places of connection. Sometimes it's humor, sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's tears. Yeah, sure. Yes, you wanted to say something. I thought another factor was the uh, the evolution of their relationship. Oh. Because uh, they were so fluid together. They were such a team. They were such a partnership in that running. Yeah. But I can't imagine this started out that way. Uh-huh. And the trust that the fellow had in his in Steve. Uh, Mike and Harry. Mike yeah. and Harry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't know where I got Steve. Um, the trust, the trust that the the blind fellow had in uh-huh. his partner was very, very firm and strong. Uh-huh. And so it made me think that if we had the privilege or the uh, ability to be in a role, mm-hmm. not a role, to be in a position where you are meeting the same person every week. Mm-hmm. Or it's like this a relationship, it evolves over time. Mm-hmm. It cannot have started that way. Yeah. There's no way they could run without having a lot of times that they ran and fell. Yeah. I mean, it has to be hammered out. Yeah. And isn't that what we have to do over time is hammer out? Well, I think that there's. We're work I think this is one, one way in which that trust gets established, no question about it, as you suggest, as a process of evolution. You know, we day in and day out to work this out. I think that's one way in which it happens. But another way in which it happens is when we show up as a trustworthy person. When we really are trustworthy. When we're actually present. Look, I work with people that sometimes I've known very, very little. Sometimes I've met them for the first time and we're walking through their dining together. That's that's often the case. And so in order for them to feel safe, I can't manage all the conditions so that they can feel safe. 
In other words, I can't take away their dying, I can't take away their illness, etc. Just can't. Um, so, but what I can do is be, be such a trustworthy presence that when they look and start relating to me, something clicks in them. And they see that they become willing to go to places that would have otherwise felt very unsafe for them. Precisely because they're being accompanied by somebody who's trustworthy. And I think we can recognize that in one, in one another, even if we don't have a history with each other. Now, I agree with you that most of the time that's best developed through our through an evolutionary process, as you suggested. But I don't think it's limited to that. Uh, we've all had moments where we've just trusted. And we can't really explain everything, reasons why. The conditions maybe even weren't even conducive to our trusting, but we trusted. And I think that's a really important, it's important to know that that's possible. So both are true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I think about the two of them together, I, it seems that there was not just the blind man trusting the seeing man, but that they trusted one another, uh-huh. and that the seeing man. Well, I want to say that in a way he had more of a responsibility, and that's always how I think of that uh-huh. part. Yeah. Well, and that was not true, but that he trusted himself. That's what I was getting at. Uh-huh. That he trusted himself. Yes. The other thing that I noticed were um, the attention to what was what they were really going through. I mean, the, the steps and the, yeah. the roots and, yeah. and just the attentiveness to to the circumstances of the race and and then the, the communication between the two of them that was ongoing and clear and specific. Yes. So there's very, there was very important details in the relationship of service. You know, Mike had a job to do. Right. You know, as the, as the sighted guy, he had a job. And he had to do it impeccably. He had to do it thoroughly. Yeah? And his job was to save rocks, stones, roots, etc. Right? But there was nothing, there was no... Um, do you remember the moment in the film where Harry says, What's the view like? <laughs> and Mike says, oh, it's great, Harry, you should see it. <laughs> yeah? It's a great moment in the film. And it's a moment for me where you get a sense of their equality, that there's no pity that's part of this act of service. There's a kind of equality, it's really based on equality. They each have roles in them, but they're not wedded just to that role. They're not defined just by that role. Yeah. But Mike has stuff he has to do, and he has to do it impeccably. That's important. Yeah. Yes? One thing that we talked about a little bit is um, it's sort of almost that craving for some reflection um, or sort of, you know, we're used to watching the Olympics where you like, you get the action and then you go and you get the personal story uh, and yeah. people talk about how they came to do this or what yeah. it felt like afterwards yeah. and for me a big part of service is reflection and service go together um, and so this was really interesting for me to see just the service, just the action, and to separate from the reflection, mm-hmm. um, and because it brought up sort of questions in my mind of how important is that reflection afterwards? You know, when the two guys are talking about it, how to go, and how mm-hmm. great it was, or how it felt, or they talked about initially why they decided to do it, and we wanted to know like whose idea was it to yeah. do this, and did that matter in their relationship right. in terms of how we viewed it, and all 
we had a well, lot that's, of questions. That's the backstory. You know, we like the backstory. We exactly. want to get the backstory. But it's useful also just to look at it as ourselves. For example, which person did you find yourself identifying more with when you were watching the film? Did you relate more, identify more with Harry, this blind guy, or with Mike, the sighted guy? But just know, which did you find yourself relating to? Mm -hmm. And how was that? It's pretty trippy because I know that trail and I haven't run it. Well, we've been talking about a number of different elements. And so I, I want to ask one more, well, maybe a couple more questions. It's pretty clear why Harry, besides the blind guy, needs Mike to run the race. Right? That's pretty clear. And what's in it, we can understand what's in it for Harry. He gets to run the race, which would otherwise be difficult or maybe even impossible for him. What's in it for Mike to run the race? Please. Huh. I don't want us to become idealistic about this. Mike, I mean, Harry needs Mike. Harry's the blind guy. Harry needs Mike to do this. This, But Mike has needs too. It's like when people would come to volunteer with us at the hospice, I would ask them, how does it serve you to do this work of caring for the dying? Well, if there was nobody in the house to take care of the dying people, they were going to have a pretty hard time. But we needed to be there to do that, but it served us to do it. How does it serve Mike to do this? You've said it's a, he gets a fuller, richer experience. I want to explore that. Does anybody else have thoughts about that? consciousness of what he's doing. I mean, he can't run on autopilot. Yes, so he, so he, he has to be a lot more alert. Every step and fully present in every step. Okay, that's, a, that's an important piece of it. Yes? I feel like from the very beginning, I, I saw him as the, the driver. And now as we discuss it more, I start to see it more as not the driver, but it's steering. Uh -huh. it's the, the, mm -hmm. They become this like sort of a shift, and he, you can't be, a, you can't steer unless there's an object to steer. And so he's learning how to, to look at the obstacles as a as a, a larger uh -huh. thing. And then so that's part that's part of his role. That's part of his task is to look at the object. Yes. What did you want to say? Yeah, going back what you said in terms of how to view. So there's something that, that you feel like Harry sort of reminds Mike of something to get a bigger get a bigger picture. Yeah. That's good. You wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, looking at the whole race is kind of a metaphor. Yeah. By comparing the, the, we were talking about this earlier, comparing the, the runners who were doing it individually have this grim, determined yeah. look on their faces. Uh-huh. And, and I guess what they get out of it um, is the sense of accomplishment, personal efficacy. I did it. Yeah. And, and what is Mike? Mike is the cyber guy? Yes. What he gets out of it is maybe a sense of meaning. Like I was, or the meaning that comes from from helping somebody else. And, and it's almost kind of a metaphor for life or any endeavor one does together um, with a relationship um, that can give, give added meaning right. to, to the journey. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Yes, we're in relationship with one another. And so is in relationship with one another just because we're trying to live out some you know, idealistic dream. Some of us are in relationship with one another because it makes us feel safe. Some of us are in relationship because it gives meaning and value to our life. I mean, that was so in their, in their relationship, I agree. Yeah, Mike, well, let me keep asking you. What else? Yeah, I kept thinking about how intimate it was. Intimate? Ah, that's a great word. Yeah, because so this is the metaphor for the relationship of service. Intimate. What did you notice about this intimacy? Well, just how unified they were and how present they were together. That was totally Yeah, so that's an element of your service, a kind of intimacy. Jerry Jim Hall used to say, into you, see, into me, see. So that's a big piece of it, yes, that's very good. Please. Yeah, I'm struck by the intimacy of sensation. Of sensation? They would have to be. Oh, they would have to be very tuned. Yes. They would have to be in contact with their own, what's happening for their own body, but also what's happening in the other Yeah. So there's a kind of attunement that they are attuned for to them. And that's an aspect of the service relationship. It's an attunement. We attune ourselves. And we, we're going to talk about this next week, but we attune ourselves. And one of the things that compassion does is bring about this kind of attunement when there's suffering. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, I, I want to still point to this thing, though, and, and uh, it's about Mike. Why does Mike do it? What's Mike get out of it? Yes. I think it's a basic human need for interdependence. Interdependence. A basic human need, well, it's made the basic human truth that there's interdependence. What's the need part of that? What do you mean? I think, I think it's just a need to feel that you no. our relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way in which you get that need met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um. I don't know if I should bring this up, but it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, well, no. Anne brought it up earlier. She said it's a joy. It's yeah, I mean, good. Mike was having a wonderful time. Seems to be having a good time. Absolutely. He was running his race, too, wasn't he? Yeah. He was being challenged also. And I think there is an element of that in the service. I hope so. Otherwise, it's really dour. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's obligation and duty and burden. So there's another piece that I, I just want to add at this point, just because our time's running out. But Mike sees differently through the relationship of service. He sees the world differently. Partly it's what this woman said about when Harry says, how's the view? That's one li- literal way. It's also what he notices. He notices the rocks and the roots and different things. But he's, that's part of it. But it is another way in which he sees the world differently. Can you see that? Does that make sense to you? 
Do you want to say something about that? Is it like it's kind of like when you get out of your own way or you are not so fixed in your ideas about yourself? Yes. You open up to this other own reality that's right. present. Right. We get another perspective, right? And we see it, but it's a beautiful way of saying it. Another whole reality which was always present that we might not have been noticing. Why do I work with people who are dying? Because they show me things that I would otherwise have a hard time seeing. They help me to see horizons that I might not otherwise see. And I wouldn't see them unless I was with them. Yeah. So they serve me, and I serve them. And that's the mutuality, the exchange of this relationship. You know, I'm helping out with this, Mark, because um, I think that um, Mike discovered, just discovered itself and abilities and qualities that may not have been in him, or that were in him, but he didn't know it until he went through this experience with Harry. So is that um, a prideful reason to go into service, is to assess the discovery? Um, I think that uh, it's a common outcome of service, that we have this sense of discovery that you're describing. I think we can get proudful about what we've discovered, and then we sort of take it on as a possession. However, you know, my friend Angelus Arian, she has a beautiful way of talking about it. She says, in our work, in our work of service, part of our task is to cultivate our curiosity so that it's greater than our criticality. Yeah. It's a beautiful way of saying it, actually. Or another way that I think about this race is they aren't, ra they aren't going through the race with, a, with trying to determine a particular outcome. Sure, they want to get to the end. But it's really to discover as they go through it. So for me, this sense of discovery and curiosity is implicit, actually, in the relationship of service. That we never know where we're going in the relationship of service. That we are always discovering in this process. And so it requires constant openness and flexibility and a willingness to forgive constantly. At the beginning, again, constantly. For me, this is what characterizes the relationship of service. I want to get somebody that hasn't spoken yet. Yeah. I was just curious at the beginning of the body. Yes. What did you notice? throughout these classes, but I, it's because it's, for me, I found it so incredibly useful in the act of service. That frequently um, we are leaving or abandoning our bodies when we go to do service and we go quickly up to our minds and start strategizing about what needs to happen. And while that's a beautiful capacity, that capacity of our mind, our intuition is an experience of the body. It's not an experience of our thinking mind. And so, um, we need contact with our intuition in the, in the relationship of service, the work of service. A friend of mine, Charlie Garfield, says, we make many more mistakes by not acting on our intuition than we do when we act on our intuition. So I think that's one of the reasons I want to say. You know, when, 
When also, the, and the last thing I would say about that is when we're in contact with our bodies, we're always here. Because the body's always here. Our thoughts and emotions are often elsewhere. Our body's always here. So the more contact we have with our body, the more present, the more we are in the now, the more available we are to ourselves and to others. Well, we ran out of time again. I, uh, I'm really enjoying this. It's fun to explore this with like this with you. Uh, is this useful? No. Oh, good. Oh, great. So, um, we didn't get to cover all the things I'd hoped we'd cover, but that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, so, just as a reflection during this week, uh, you know, as you come, we'll come back together next week, you might just watch, um, just remember the film, you know, and remember these things that we've been talking about, in a way. And, um, um, Look for opportunities to service. Yeah. Look for opportunities to serve. Could be a really simple thing. Helping someone across the street. Giving somebody directions. Really simple thing. Look for opportunities to serve. And notice what comes up in you when you do the act of service. Just notice what happens to you when you do the act of service. Do you, you know, during, just before it, in the middle of it, and after it's over. Okay? Look for an act, look for, look for simple act of service. Notice what happens to you just before it, in the middle of it, and right after. Okay? We'll talk about that next week. And uh, you'll see what happens. We'll all be curious to hear. So, um, thank you very much for coming.